Good evening. How are you? It's great to see you. Wonderful to be here and just a great honor to be part of the story of what God is doing here. This evening we're going to look at the topic, Telling Others About Jesus. Telling Others About Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, we read that Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, telling people everywhere about me. In Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the question I'm asking tonight that we want to ask together is how do we tell others about Jesus in this cultural moment, in this city, where, if we're honest, we find it really difficult. We are facing great opposition and hostility to our faith, increasingly so, that we are asking the question, how on earth do we, do, we, do we be witnesses to Jesus in the face of our own fears, in the face of the opposition that we endure? I know we endure opposition because when I first came to Los Angeles, I was flying in to plant this church. I was flying in for about five days at a time to kind of cultivate a community who wanted to plant this church together. We only had three people in the city that we knew. And we thought, well, I've got to fly out there and meet people. And in one of those weekends, I was in Los Angeles. I met someone who said, hey, Geb, awesome. Why don't you come to this launch event in Beverly Hills with me? And so he told me where to meet him. And we went, I went to this bar in Beverly Hills and waited for him. And he didn't show up. But I thought, you know what? That's okay. And I went inside anyway and got a drink at the bar and started to talk to three of the people there. Had an incredible conversation with these three people. Amazing stories about their movies that they wanted to be in, their scripts that they were writing, and all these kinds of things. I was fascinated by who they were and what brought them to LA, and eventually they asked the question which I was dreading. And they said to me, so yeah, what brings you to LA? Now, I was raised in a secular context in England where I knew no Christians except for those in my church. And so I knew the kind of antagonism that I might face, and I was a bit nervous about sharing what I was doing in LA. And so I said to them what I've said all my life, and someone asked me what I do now. I said, well, I just don't think I ought to say. And um, they said, mate, don't worry. You know, this is LA. This is, everything's normal. It's safe here, man. It's, you know, it can't be that bad. And I go, mate, it really is. I don't think it's gonna go well. He went, bro, don't worry. This is gonna be great. We're here for you. And I went, okay, okay. And I said, well, I'm here to start a new church. I'm a pastor. And the guy on my left picked up his drink and walked away. (laughs) The guy in front of me picked up his drink and looked at me and went, but you're such a nice guy. (laughs) And then he walked away. And the girl on my right, the lady on my right, just looked at me and actually tears filled her eyes as I could sense that she was worried about being next to someone who might condemn or judge or shame her. And she just politely said, excuse me, and she left. This is the reality of the cultural moment that we're living in. We're living in a time where Christianity is not a popular topic. Telling others about Jesus is opposed 
And in my observations, there's really three oppositions that we're facing. First of all, there's the spiritual opposition that Jesus felt and anyone will always feel because we have a spiritual enemy who doesn't really like people discovering Jesus. And so in one sense, it's obvious that there'll be opposition. No advance of the kingdom goes unopposed. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. We have a spiritual enemy. But on top of that layer of spiritual opposition, there's cultural opposition in this city of Portland that we're living in or Los Angeles. We're sharing our faith. It's increasingly difficult because we are living in, as you know, a postmodern generation where people don't want to discover objective truth. They want to find out what works for them. We're moving out of objectivity to subjectivity, which, hey man, whatever works for you is awesome, but it's not my truth. That's your truth. And I'll just find out my own truth. Thanks very much. We're moving away from authority to autonomy. We don't want experts to tell us what to believe. We don't want a pastor to say, believe this. We want to discover our own belief system through self-discovery and autonomy. And when we're moving away from evidence to experience, where people say to me often in L.A. that, hey, yeah, man, anybody can slice and dice evidence to support their own agenda. I actually have given up even trusting in any evidence. It's really down to what really works for me. And right now, matcha lattes and hot yoga, that's really my truth. That's working for me. And then, of course, we're living in not only postmodernism, but also post-Christendom, where Portland is at the forefront of that, L.A. is as well, where the Christian voice is moving from the majority and has a long time left the majority to now the minority, where we're wondering how to react that way, where people see the Christian voice as once at the center of public discourse, but now on the fringe, and ridiculed, and where increasingly, this is something new versus what I grew up with in England, which was secular, post-Christendom. I didn't know any Christians growing up at all unless they were in my church. But we growing up in England in a post-Christendom society were, the res- were respected. We were the, the goody-two-shoes of society. We had the moral high ground, even if people didn't believe in what we believed. But increasingly, we're moving from respected to disrespected, where you will be mocked or teased or seen as anti-intellectual. And actually, even worse than that, you'll be seen as what's wrong with society, not what is right with society or even good in society. A friend of ours who became a Christian on Alpha two years ago was petrified about coming out as a Christian to her friends because she knew what that meant for her relationships, she knew what that meant for the stereotypes, and she knew what that meant as far as social criticism. All of those cultural oppositions mean that actually we have another set of oppositions which are not external but internal. We have actually personal oppositions in our own heart where if you talk to anybody like this in this community and you say, hey, we're going to talk about telling others about Jesus, there's a collective groan of, oh. Because there's deep opposition in our own internal structures where we don't want to associate ourselves with maybe some of the evangelistic spokespeople of the last 30 years, it's the shame of, oh, what we, we just come across as judgmental. We just come across as arrogant. I don't want to be like that. I don't want anything to do with that. We then have fear of rejection. Like my friend who came out as a Christian, fear of, I'm actually going to be rejected. I might even lose my job. I might actually not be welcome in this community anymore. There's the fear of our reputation, of, oh, my word, I thought you were scientific. I thought you were intellectual. How can you believe in that kind of legend or myth? And then there's obviously fear of losing our relationships. 
where people start to go, man, I don't actually want that kind of influence in our community. And then we have opposition because we think in this cultural moment, people are so far away from Jesus, I have no idea how to help them find him. That people have no commonality with us, and they're so far away. The old methodologies of introducing people to Jesus do not work anymore, and we don't know what to do. I was reminded of this when I was only 18. In a secular context, we were taught um, to, you know, people needed Jesus and tell people about Jesus, but we were given tools and methodologies which were sincerely believed in their love for others, but terrible evangelism. It didn't move people an inch toward him. In fact, it moved people further away. I was reminded of this, and it convinced me of this, when I took a year out before law school. And I went to a church in Glasgow in Scotland to help them for a few weeks with telling others about Jesus. And I was young and enthusiastic, and I didn't know quite what that meant. But they said, here's what we do, Gay. Here's how we do it. We go down the shopping district, which is an outdoor precinct, and there's no cars. It's just a square with, with all these shops around it. And... You're going to preach, and you're going to preach for about five, ten minutes, and don't worry, we'll gather a crowd, and then you can preach to the crowd. And what we're going to do, we're going to bring the worship team down, and we're going to set up, and we're going to sing songs, and then we're going to praise Jesus on the street. People will gather, be intrigued by this holy choir of people singing, and then when the choir gathers, you get out there and bring them all to Jesus. And I thought, this is not going to work, but, uh, you know, okay, and so the worship team started, and they were singing, and they were worshiping, and we were, like, closing our eyes, hoping no one would, you know, really kind of throw anything at us, but uh, we were doing that, and to no one's surprise, no crowd gathered, and I thought, phew, I don't have to preach, this is ridiculous, but then, all of a sudden, one of the guys who's part of this church called Barry suddenly walked over to a trash can on the side of the public square. He opened the lid, took out a black garbage bag, which was kind of full, tied a knot in it, then went back to the center of the square, stood in the middle, and started to throw this trash bag in the air. As high as he could, and he caught it. Threw it again as high as he could, and he caught it. I thought, Barry, what on earth are you doing? We look weird enough already... (laughs) This is not doing anything good. And we thought, we all looked at him and thought, what on earth are you doing? He kept throwing it in the air and catching it again. And said, Barry, what are you doing? This is so embarrassing. And we were looking at him, but then the rest of the street were looking at him. And they started to gather around Barry and looking at Barry. And he was throwing it in the air and they were catching it, throwing it in the air. And then suddenly he threw it in the air, looked at me and went, now again, now. And I ran, I ran into the middle of his crowd and started to preach and disperse that crowd as quickly as he gathered it. <laughs> totally ineffective, totally detrimental to the witness of Jesus in Glasgow. But we all know, right, it's like, man, I don't know if anything that we do as a church is really going to help my friends. They're so far away that we're paralyzed in like, I hope they come to Jesus, but I, I don't know what to do. I certainly don't want to do that stuff. And so what we end up doing is we delegate it out. We don't know what to do, so we delegate it out. We go, you know what? Probably the experts and the extroverts, those are the people who tell people about Jesus. It's the experts. It's John Mark Comer. We pay him to tell people about Jesus. And I want to do worship. I want to do Bible study. I want to do formation. But, you know, the pros can do evangelism. 
all the extroverts. You know there's like 1% of your congregation who are kind of quirky, kind of extroverted, and don't care about how their reputation, and just go on airplanes and just start preaching at Jesus, uh, to people about Jesus. It's like, how many of you are like that? Yeah, two. Amazing. Front row, right? Front row. Here we are. So the rest of us are like going, bless you. That's awesome. The spiritual gift inventory that we do, you're the evangelist, I'm the disciple, and that's fine. We delegate. Or many people in LA, maybe here, are starting to go one step beyond that and going, you know what? And these are phrases that people have said to me. It's like, yeah, I'm post-church. I'm post-evangelical. I'm post-Pentecostal. I'm even, as I'm deconstructing what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this society, I'm actually post-evangelism. I'm not too sure we even should be telling people about Jesus. Barna came out with a statistic, which is no surprise for those in cities like Portland or LA, where it says 47% of Christian millennials are struggling with even the idea of telling people about Jesus. That maybe in a tolerant, pluralistic community, we shouldn't be doing that. All of this adds up to one conclusion that we face every day in our city as Christians, and I think you may be facing it here, is that we have a crisis about evangelism. It's the convenient thing we just want to forget. And we want to do something else. And I get it. The problem is, God broke my heart for the lost of Los Angeles. And I believe he wants to break your heart for the lost of this city. That we have to do the hard work and come together and go, we can't ignore it. In fact, love compels us. In fact, I'm here for this very purpose. As Jesus was sent to seek and save the lost, so have I been sent to Portland. So what does it mean for us not to shrink back, not to retreat, but actually to press in to the calling on our lives and our church to bring the good news to those who don't know Jesus? We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at what John Wimber, who was the leader of the Vineyard Church, said, if you ever want to introduce something in church or reintroduce it or see it on fire, you need three things. A theology for it, to remind us why we're doing this. Secondly, a model that works. A model that puts legs to your theology that you go, I can do that. That seems accessible to me. And then thirdly, we need to go away and actually do it. A theology, a model, and a practice. So let's look very briefly at the theology. Why on earth are we called to tell people about Jesus? If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at very briefly a story of Paul bringing the gospel to a city that was extremely hostile. Great opposition to the gospel in Acts chapter 16. And do you remember when in Acts chapter 1, we read earlier, Jesus said, you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the great news as we look at this, Paul is taking Jesus at his word in going, I'm not doing this on my own, but I'm following the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is given us because by ourselves, we're petrified about telling others. That if you're here today going, yeah, I don't want to tell others then congratulations. God knew that. And so he said, I will give you my spirit. So what does it look like to move from being petrified about telling others about Jesus to actually being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it? We're going to look at this passage and we're going to see three things that actually brings great faith and hope to all of us in the room. 
The Holy Spirit leads us as we tell others. The Holy Spirit burdens us, and the Holy Spirit empowers us. In verse 6, we're going to begin. It says this, Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia, because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. I'm going to stop there and see our first point. is on this journey of telling others that actually Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will lead you as we commit to the task of telling others about Jesus. I don't know about you, but it's quite daunting to think, how on earth are we going to see Portland come to Jesus? There's so many challenges, there's so many oppositions, there's so many cultural faux pas, there's all sorts of things. What do we do? Better production values, better social media strategy, what are we going to do? Paul had a plan to reach Asia Minor and Europe for the gospel. But the heart of his plan was being dependent on where, where the Holy Spirit wanted him to go. See, the great news is, when you're looking at Portland, when you're looking at Los Angeles, the Holy Spirit has a plan to reach this city. He's not daunted by the opposition. He's not surprised looking at God the Father and going, oh my word, have you seen Portland? (laughs) What have they done? No. He knew everything that was going to happen, and he knew the plan through you, through Bridgetown, through other gospel churches, to go, here's what we're going to do. And Paul was on his missionary journey, and he was able to listen to the Holy Spirit, say, don't go there, go here. Don't go there, go here. When you as a church commit to saying, we're going to reach the city for Jesus, it begins with saying, Holy Spirit, show us what to do. In your workplace, Holy Spirit, show me what to do. In your families, Holy Spirit, Show me what to do. And you'll be listening to the nudges of the Holy Spirit. Pray for that person. Text an encouragement to that person. Invite that person to Alpha. You'll be listening to the nudges of the Holy Spirit. And before you know it, you see that telling others primarily is an adventure of following the Holy Spirit. When we moved to LA, we only knew three people. And I was desperate to find more people to plant this church. I was flying out for the weekends to cultivate a church planting launch team. The family were about to move out in three months and we had three people and it wasn't going so well. I was having eight coffees a day to try and cultivate relationships to plant a church. I was wired beyond all comprehension. And I went one day for a jog around Santa Monica. Ended up, yeah. It was probably more of a walk, I've got to be honest, and (laughs) walking around Santa Monica. And I was praying, going, Lord, you've got to do something. And we passed this church, and I felt, as I passed this church on the corner of 18th and Washington in Santa Monica, I felt a nudge of the Holy Spirit. I felt a nudge of the Holy Spirit saying, this is important. I didn't know what that meant. I asked the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? He didn't tell me, he just said, this is important. And so I went back to where I was staying, And as I got back, about half an hour later, the person I was staying with said, Gay, you never guess what? There's this amazing new church plant. I've just discovered them. They're amazing. They're like full of the spirit. They're so exciting. God's doing amazing things. They've already gathered about 30, 40 people in such a short time. 
we should go up. They're having a worship service tonight. We should go up and like, get to know them, encourage them. And everything in me wanted to be happy. But I was so bitter and so kind of toxic. God, how could you bring another church just before I'm, I'm here? He's like, what are you doing? This is bad management. This is bad deployment of your team. <laughs> and then she said, they're meeting at this church on 18th and Washington up the road. I felt, ah, that nudge of the Holy Spirit. So I went, okay, let's go. So we went up, we arrived a bit late and walked in. And as I walked in, sat down, I felt, wow, this seems familiar. I don't know anyone in this room, but they feel like family. Like they're worshiping this kind of way and they're just handling, they're preaching this kind of way. And this sounds, wow, this is kind of like the church that we want to start. And then the lead pastor got up and he said this. He said, as you know, we've been cultivating this church plant now for about six months. And I've come out of a, a church in Orange County and we've been cultivating it. It's very exciting. But as you know, last week I announced that the lead pastor of the church in Orange County is transitioning and I need to go back and I need to take over. So we announced last week that if this is going to continue, in the next couple of weeks we need to find a church planter who's already here. who already kind of has raised his funds and can take over straight away. And I'm going, pick me. <laughs> I then went up to him afterwards and we introduced ourselves to each other and we had the identical friendships through Alpha, through HDB, through someone like Mike, called Mike Pilavacci, I know who's come here. We were like brothers that we'd never met before. And he was kind of tears filled his eyes and he introduced me to the community that next week and it was because in a city like LA I'm going Lord I have no idea how you're going to break into the city and he goes it's okay I do follow me are you listening to the nudges of the Holy Spirit but secondly Paul not only was led by the Spirit he was burdened by the Spirit look at this in verse 9 the Holy Spirit leads him to the seaport of Troas. And then in verse 9 it says, That night Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. Do you see what the Holy Spirit is doing? He is giving Paul a glimpse of the pain and the fate of those who don't know Jesus. He's there minding his own business, hanging out on the roof terrace of a house somewhere in Troas, having a cup of tea and a cake. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit descends and says, I want to give you a glimpse into what it's like to not know Jesus. And before him was a man from Greece who would have looked sophisticated, who would have looked like he had it all together, was in a culture that everyone esteemed as the good life, kind of like Portland. And yet this man was doing something that was the opposite to what everyone thought would be happening. He was begging Paul for help. He was begging for help. See, Jesus hears the cries of those who are stuffing their lives with everything that this world says is what you need and yet fundamentally is still empty and broken 
and lonely and depressed and unfulfilled. You see, Paul could have looked at Macedonia and said, God, why are you, you know, they have it all together. Philippi is a Roman colony. It's the elite of the cities in this area. It's wealthy. It's cosmopolitan. They have it all together. They are the, you know, the envy of every other community in this area. And yet God says, I want you to hear the cries of those who don't know me, even though they look like they have it all together. I want you to hear what I hear every day for people who don't know me. And Paul was so broken in his heart with love for this man. The next verse is simply this. So we concluded we had to leave at once to bring the gospel to them. See, the Holy Spirit, I believe, is doing the same thing with all of us in L.A. and in Portland. He's breaking our hearts again for those who don't know him. It's so easy, isn't it, to look at Portland and go, man, this is the good life. People look good. They've got great outdoor gear. They've got great outdoor lifestyle. (laughs) They've got washed coffee. They've got this, every ingredient is from some organic farm in Tibet. It's just (laughs) unbelievable. And yet you know as well as I do, behind that, behind these good things, because they're not God things, there remains depression, the anxiety, the broken relationships, the insecurity, the fears, and ultimately, an eternity separated from Jesus. If there's one thing I pray for tonight is that Bridgetown continues to say, Jesus, never let our hearts be cold to the cries of those who don't know Jesus in our city. To look beneath the veneer of the good life and to hear the cries of pain that you hear day in, day out of the city you love. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit does something else. He leads us, he burdens us. But we see in the rest of this chapter, I don't have time to read it, but we see Paul empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel to the city. This story is incredible. Please read it later. There's three people who come to know Jesus in Philippi, and they each come to, to Christ in a different way. Paul is empowered to bring the gospel to the city in three ways, and he wants to empower us in these three ways too. Words, wonders, and works. Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman who came to Jesus because Paul explained the gospel to her, answered her questions, intellectually helped her through the hoops of this man called Jesus from Bethlehem, who is now the Son of God. And on Alpha, the reason, one of the reasons why I love Alpha so much is because we respect people's questions about faith. We respect their doubts. We respect their concerns. And like Paul, the Holy Spirit takes his words and he still takes our words over Alpha over eight weeks and people go, thank you, I needed help with this. And she gave her life to Jesus. The next person received Jesus in a totally different way. Paul meets a slave girl who was oppressed by a demon. She was socially and spiritually so oppressed, no apologetic conversation about the historical evidence of the resurrection was ever going to move her. What she needed was a deliverance, a wonder, 
a miracle to break through. And so Paul said, in the name of Jesus, come out, and she was set free. If we're going to reach the city, we need to be empowered to do the things that Jesus did, including signs and wonders. Have you ever realized in the Gospels, lots of the miracles in some of the Gospels are called signs and wonders? And what is a wonder? Something that makes you wonder. What on earth was that? You see, so often people looked at Jesus and went, ah, carpenter from Nazareth. And then he did something. He healed a blind man. And they go, who is he? Because he alerted them that he was more than what they thought. And so often, we need to be empowered with the power of God because in this culture, like L.A., it's not until there's a power moment in their life that they go, whoa, 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 hang on. I remember this happened to my boss. I was working in the law firm, and my boss shared an office with him, and I was trying to do everything I could in that office to change his stereotype of of Christians who are judgmental and arrogant and hypocritical and anti-scientific to try and be, no, you've got it all wrong, and I was just trying to love him and show that my faith was not those things. And I would try and invite him to church, would never come. Try to tell my story, he would never want to listen. He was so opposed to Jesus, it was like, no way, man. Until one day he came back from lunch and he walked into the office and said, yeah, me and you, lunch now. And I thought, I've lost my job. (laughs) I thought, I've lost a client. I've drafted a contract wrongly. Anyway, we got to the coffee shop and I said, Michael, what's wrong? He said, well, you know, recently I lost a family member. And I said, yeah, I'm so sorry. And um, How are you doing? He went, no, 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 I don't want to talk about it. You know, I said, you're a Christian, right? I said, yes, I am. He said, well, explain this to me. He said, I was just coming back from lunch. Just coming back from his house up the road, actually. Coming back from his house. And you know, I was walking past, I was walking past his church. You know, St. James at the road? I went, yeah. He said, I was walking past St. James. And as I was walking past St. James, this guy came out of the church building, out the front doors, came straight up to me and said to me, I've been in a prayer meeting in the bottom of that room, that church, and God told me to come outside find the first man I could find, and tell him the following word. And I thought to myself, God, this better be good. (laughs) It can't be be weird, right? Put me back 10 years in my efforts with this guy. I said, Michael, what did he say? He he, He said to me, God knows that you've just lost a loved one. He knows your grief. He wants to be there for you and you not to be alone. He loves you. He wants you to know his love. I said, Michael, what did you do? He said, I ran away. (laughs) I came straight to you. I thought, this is weird. Who are you? How do you know this about me? And he said, what is this? I said, Michael, I think God's trying to get through to you. I think he does love you, and it sounds like he loves you so much. He told a guy in a prayer meeting (laughs) to do the bravest thing he's ever done, (laughs) and you left him stranded. (laughs) But it sounds like God wants to get through to you. And that was the wonder for Michael to start his journey 
And every Wednesday, he would come with me on the tube across London to the Alpha Course and explore and go on his journey towards Jesus. We need to be clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, Paul saw another person come to know Jesus, and very briefly, it was a Roman jailer who had no interest in Jesus. He was just told that these Christians were causing trouble, so the jailer locked them up because he was told if you, if you don't lock them up and if they escape, the, ex, the jailer will be killed. So he was like, okay, don't worry, and he locked them in the inner, jun- inner dungeon with stocks. They weren't getting out. That was his life if they got out. But there was an earthquake in the middle of the night. The doors flew open. The stocks fell off. The jailer woke up and assumed that Paul had left, which is what I would have done, right? And gone to the prayer meeting and praised the Lord for my release, right? But, but the jailer knew, oh my word, I'm going to die. I'm going to get executed for letting these guys free. And so the jailer, it says in this chapter, got his sword and was about to kill himself because he didn't want to go through the shame of a public execution. And it was in that moment that he experienced something that was more dramatic than the earthquake and more dramatic than anything he'd ever seen. He experienced something that Paul gave him that we can give to our city. Because Paul looked at their jailer, saw he was about to kill himself, but didn't see it as an opportunity, opportunity to be free. But he, it, for him, it was an opportunity to love his enemy, to save the life of his torturer. Paul stayed to love his enemy. That kind of love rocked that man's world and said, what must I do to be saved? See, it's only the Holy Spirit who can help us with that kind of love. But in a city like Portland, if we're going to wake them up to the love of Jesus, we move beyond loving our friends, beyond loving those who love us, and we start loving and serving those who persecute us. Loving and serving those who backstab you, who gossip about you, who fudge their sales report to get the promotion that you deserved, who actually said stuff about you to other people that you're now out of the loop, out of the friendship circle because of lies. It's them that we love. See, the power of love in a context like Portland will disorient and shock people to think, hang on a minute, there's something about Jesus that I didn't realize. Paul, empowered by the Holy Spirit, saw the gospel break out in a culture far more hostile than Portland because he was led by the Spirit, he was empowered by the Spirit, and he was burdened to not give up to see the lost come to Christ. You see, Paul tapped into this simple truth that our priority and our passion and our purpose is that of Jesus to bring the gospel to the lost of our city. And he wasn't going to give up. But how do we do it? That's the theology. And it's all good, and Gary, get it. That all sounds great, and check the box, good theology. But how on earth do we do it in Portland? I want to suggest that the biggest question that I find in LA is the question that you have. I believe you want your friends to come to know Jesus. I just think we're petrified because we don't know how to do it. That's not going to kill our relationships. In other words, the question, I wonder if it's on the screen here. Next slide. 
This is the question that people have in LA. Is there a way to tell others that isn't pushy, super awkward, preachy, disrespectful, judgy, arrogant, unloving, unkind, cheesy, shaming, super difficult, or as mean girls say, social suicide? (laughs) Isn't that really the barrier? I think we want our friends to come to know Jesus. We just don't know how to do it. That doesn't breach any of that. And it's because, actually, our methodology is out of date. You see, here's a bit of a snapshot history of evangelism over the last 50 years. In the 1950s, we had a culture that was generally open to Christianity, that they believed the truths of Christianity. They just weren't convictionally caught up with that. And so how we actually saw people come to know Jesus was through what I call convictional moments. That you get it, you believe kind of Jesus is real, you like the church generally, you're just like, but you're like on a wild kind of pattern right now. You're sewing your, 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 you know, whatever around. And you just need to come to Jesus. And you had amazing anointed preachers who would bring that convictional moment. And hundreds of thousands of people would fill stadiums, hear Billy Graham, and go, you know what, yeah, where am I going to go where I die? I need to answer that question. I can't put it off any longer. But time moved on from there. In the 1970s and 80s, with modernism at its peak, people started to go, and MTV at its peak, started to go, man, Duran Duran is so much more cooler than church on Sunday. And I want to live, and I want to be entertained. And so church was boring. But also, with modernism, church was not giving any kind of evidence. Like, how do I know Jesus is true and Santa Claus is false? How do I know that? You know, where's the evidence? And multiculturalism started to boom, and people go, hang on a minute, there's other religions. Why are they wrong? And Jesus is right. Where's the evidence? So we had amazing books like Josh McDowell's, kind of the ev- you know, evidence that demands a verdict, or Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. Really helpful books to go, first, you need to do this, and then there's a convictional moment. Amazing, amazing results. But guess what? We're no longer in that territory. 2019 in Portland, we are living with a whole new set of obstacles for people to explore Jesus. So much so that my little stick figure, terrible graphics, I know, but my little stick figure here, when people are interested in spirituality, the last place they'll look is Jesus. That actually they're more likely to go to their hot yoga or their meditation retreat and find their spiritual answers there than Jesus. Because there's all these barriers in the way of, I want to experience, don't tell me what to believe, I want to find out what works for me. I, you know, I want to discover it, I don't want to be told. Christianity is tolerant and intolerant and harmful, and all of this baggage that comes with what people think, that they go, you know what, I don't want anything to do with it. And so the question is, what do we do in this environment? Does that ring true for Portland? What do we do? I want to suggest two simple things that we are finding very effective in Los Angeles. And I would suggest you can find effective here. That isn't super awkward, pushy, judgmental, etc. And it's not social suicide. First of all, two steps. First of all, love. Love your city. Love your colleagues. Love them in a way that the jailer was loved by Paul. So you disorient them with their preconceptions of what Christians are, where they actually smell Jesus for the first time, not hypocrisy. I think we can do that, right? I think we can go, you know what? We are going to 
change how people feel about the name of Jesus in our city. They may not believe and want to follow him, but we're going to change that. We're going to be the first Christian, like my colleagues used to say at work, yeah, you're the first Christian that we like. I think we start there. Be the first Christian that your colleagues like. Because you love them. You're serving them. You're encouraging them. You're not gossiping. You're not doing all of these things. I had a little challenge at work that people in my work all didn't know Jesus and had a negative view of him. I thought, I need to change that. And in the end, they'd tease me for being the Christian. They bought me a Jesus action figure on my desk. (laughs) You know. They bought this Jesus action figure with this big kind of beach ball earth balloon. And went, oh, look, he's got the whole world in his hands, you know. And... (laughs) But I knew beneath that teasing, in England, if they tease you, they love you. If they ignore you, they hate you. So I was thinking, I'm winning. In the sense of, I want you to discover what Jesus is really like. And they would say to me, I worked in marketing for a while, and it was like, yeah, can you say this? And it was kind of a fudging the truth. I went, no, mate, I'm I'm not going to do that. And because, you know what, if 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 I fudge the truth for you, then you'll never trust me ever again. And I want to be of integrity. I want you to be able to trust me in everything I do. And so that was their competition. They had a little sweet steak and a bet. Who can get Gare to lie? That was their little joke. But it was like they're changing the perception of this, what Christians. But that's not enough. That's the first step. The first step in all sociological research about coming to Christ begins with trusting a Christian. Because they don't trust Christians. Our city does not trust Christians. But what do you do? So the next step is, if you just go back a bit, go back a bit again, that, that. (laughs) This is what I found. Love will get them to turn around and go, hmm, you're different. But there's all that stuff in the way still. And I recognize that that's where the real dilemma comes. Because we don't know what to do about that. And the old methodologies don't work. Next slide. Stadium evangelism won't help that. Bring them to a church service. Listen to John Mark. Works for many people, but lots of our friends are too far away. Bridgetown community, too Christian. And there's like some Christians there you don't want your friends to connect with. (laughs) Let's be honest. (laughs) Right? And then friendship evangelism, that used to be the only way of doing it. But guess what? We're so mobile, so transient, and so superficial in our conversations nowadays. We just don't ever get to that depth of friendship where we can talk about the real stuff anymore. It's just like, what, are you, what beer are you drinking? What are you watching on Netflix? It's like, oh, I'm so tired of that conversation. So what do we do? And this is what we find. So the next slide, we found... The simple thing to do, and we encourage our congregation, just love them, get them to trust you, and then bring them to Alpha. Now, for those who don't know what Alpha is, it's dinner, it's dinner conversations over eight weeks where people go on a journey to explore faith at their own pace, in love, without judgment, and without shame. We started our Alpha last week. We had 450 people come. Because our church is confident that this is how you do it nowadays. Because the journey respects that it's not about moment. They need to be respected. 
They need to experience love for the first time in a, in a Christian community. They need to be listened to, not just preached at. The three W's of the gospel are all over Alpha, words, wonders, and works of love. And what we find is this is what happens on Alpha. The messy, organic journey of the Holy Spirit bringing people through to Jesus. Now, I'm an alphaholic, <laughs> but I'm only an alphaholic because if I didn't do Alpha, I'd still be throwing garbage bags in the air <laughs> or bringing people to church and hoping the preacher doesn't do something weird <laughs> or bringing them to a community group and batting them from meeting certain people. In other words, I wouldn't know what to do. Because that's the cultural moment we're living in. And this is a way to see your friends go on a journey. And this is what Alpha does. Alpha is the first mode of evangelism I've ever found where the person being evangelized enjoys the process. Isn't that freeing to know that? And have you ever realized every other form is like, saying, is like dragging people to a sales pitch for a timeshare in a country that they'll never go to. And we don't want to do it, right? We have 450 people coming on Alpha because the people inviting them know that their friends are going to love it and there won't be a Monday morning hangover socially. Let me tell you just one story as we come to land and that is on the last Alpha course, A lady came to Alpha because she was invited by her client. This lady was a massage therapist into Reiki healing and Eastern philosophy. And while she was massaging a client, the client, Ruth, was from our church and had just been encouraged to bring someone to the first night of Alpha. So Ruth was going, oh, do you want to come to Alpha? <laughs> and she said, what is Alpha? So she said, look, it's just a cool environment. Lots of people go. It's a safe space in L.A. where we can talk about the real stuff in life without shame and judgment, explore your beliefs, explore your spirituality, and it's a lot of fun. There's no commitment, just come check it out. And so the massage therapist went, okay. It's not church, is it? And she went, it's not church. Okay, I'll come. And so she came on the Tuesday night, and she was put in my group. And then for six weeks, she didn't say a word. But then week six, she came in and said, Gare, can I say something? I went, of course you can. See, on Alpha, you don't have to say anything. You can just listen. It's a safe space. I said, of course you can say whatever you like. She said, no one knows this, but I haven't set foot in church since I was 10. She's in her 50s now. And she said, it's an unsafe place, and I've never met a Christian that I liked. In fact, I hated Christians. They were so judgmental and so painful that I promised I'd never go back to church. But I came to Alpha, and I saw you guys were Christians. And so for the first two weeks, I didn't listen to anything on the films. I just wanted to see if I could trust you. And do you know what? After a couple of weeks, I kind of like you guys. I went, thanks. She says, so for the, last, then the next two weeks, I thought, you know, I'll listen to what is being said. And she said, you, the films are talking about like, forgiveness and grace and love, and I've never heard that before. And I didn't think 
that was what God was like. I thought it was about rules, and I never wanted to be judged anymore for not being good enough. And so last week, you said, Ger, you said to me and the whole group, if you want to know if Jesus is real, just go home this week and say the simple prayer out loud, wherever you are, Jesus, if you're real, show yourself to me. And so I thought, I'll give it a go, I'll see. So the night after Alpha last week, I woke up and I thought, huh, Jesus, if you're real, show yourself to me. When I finished saying that, I felt this overwhelming love fill my life I've never experienced before. I didn't know if it was real or not, so about 10 minutes later I said it again. I said, okay, Jesus, if you're real, show yourself to me. And it happened again. And I can't stop saying it. (laughs) She said, I'm massaging clients. I'm going, Jesus, if you're real, show yourself to me. (laughs) And I keep feeling this amazing love. And she said, I want the whole group to know, because my group is full of people who wouldn't call themselves Christians. She said, I want the whole group to know, I have tried everything. I've tried every philosophy, every meditative practice, everything possible. And this week I realized, I have finally found what I've been looking for, and his name is Jesus. There are these women all over our city. And our Lord's heart breaks for them every day. And so he brought you and me to these beautiful cities to take the love that we're filled with through worship and teaching and formation to join our Lord in bringing in the rest. I don't know where you're at tonight, but my heart's cry is let's bring the love of God to this amazing city. Let's not keep it to ourselves. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.